Hello and welcome to the Ask Dr. Ben podcast. I'm your host, Ben Johnson. As a holistic-minded physician, I've spent the last 20 years looking outside the box and conducting research to find the true causes of skin conditions and other diseases. And while the focus of my work has been on aesthetic medicine and unlocking the secrets to reversing skin damage, this podcast will also include many other exciting revelations pertaining to you and your family's health and well-being. So let's get started. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Ask Dr. Ben. Really appreciate you following along with these podcasts. And today, we're going to be talking about nutrition, diet, and your skin. Now, I am in a state of... uh, Well, I feel like I've really gotten a good understanding, and so I'm going to share with you my advice as it stands today, but I will tell you that I am still reviewing and evaluating all of the possibilities, and by no means am I an expert in this category of skin health, but I do think I have uh, some good ideas for you, so let's jump right in and talk about how to guide yourself and your family during this time when it's really hard to find food that's good for you and it's even harder to find food that does not contain a lot of toxins that can affect your skin in a negative way. So I know first and foremost how challenging it is just to try to stay healthy during these times uh, with, you know, your sometimes budget requires you to eat less expensively, which usually means more toxic food is going into your body. And then secondly, it's also hard to find access to food. And, and, and then thirdly, the, <sighs> the state of the world today and the restaurants and everything. It's just, it's just a real challenge. So I know sometimes we're going, we're going for more comfort food. Sometimes we're going for more ease and convenient food. And almost never are we putting in the extra effort to stay as healthy as possible. That said, I have to say, like I, when I, I see some people who've definitely gained a lot of weight during this whole pandemic, and then I've seen other people who have uh, gotten fit during this pandemic. So it is interesting to see uh, the trend one way or the other. I'm hoping you're on the get fit category. I know this has been true for me. Focusing on your health is such an important thing to do right now, and nutrition is a critical part of that. So uh, the first sort of summarized uh, statement I'll make is I have become pretty darn convinced that the model for the body, for the healthiest body, and there's some fluctuation on this depending on body type, the model for the body is that you should generally eat 50% carbs, 25% fat, and 25% protein. Now, what varies on this to some degree is, are you someone who's in the gym lifting weights, wanting to gain a little bit more muscle? Well, then you might you know, go to as much as 30% protein, although I would kind of argue that 25% protein is going to be enough in most cases. Most people think that that extra protein shake that they're taking right after their workout is creating some huge advantage for them, but they just need to know, and you need to know, that your body's really good at recycling. So there's not a lot of amino acid additions in a diet that are making a big difference beyond the core basic 25% protein model. Now, I've heard some really intelligent arguments for 15% protein, and I think that That is the low end of a range for somebody who 
doesn't have a lot of muscle mass. We're born genetically with different structural muscle masses. I think I mentioned this in another podcast. I estimate there's probably like eight distinctive body types with layers of muscle that vary. The other thing that varies is our microbiome. So each of us has a distinctive designed microbiome that tolerates more dairy or doesn't tolerate dairy at all, or that does well digesting meats or doesn't. And, you know, it's not quite eat right for your blood type. You know, I'm not jumping on that bandwagon per se. I think what the blood type does is it does identify some trends. And so your DNA determines your blood type. Your DNA determines your microbiome. So there's a there's corollaries, although I don't I don't know that it's a perfect fit. But yes, I tend to believe that people that have a higher muscle content per body mass are going to be those that will thrive on a more meat or more protein diet. And generally, I'm going to just say, I think, in fact, people who tend to move towards uh, veganism or vegetarianism, veganism more specifically, are less likely to be big muscled individuals, heavier muscle base individuals. And I'm not just speaking of like the bodybuilder types, like some people, you know, uh, you either are born with a small, a scant amount of muscle and you have a very sort of thinner frame. uh, What is it called? An ectomorph. And then others are born with more dense muscle mass and, you know, it's all a variable on genes and your diet should reflect that to some degree. And I actually think your cravings may reflect that. So that's why I say I tend to see people, less people with this more muscular build by design falling into the vegan category. And I know (laughs) there is so much political uh, (laughs) banter uh, between the vegans and the vegetarians and the uh, carnivores because, uh, you know, we're all convinced to some degree or another we're right. And I'm not trying to jump on any of those bandwagons. I think you can thrive on a vegan diet. You can thrive on a vegetarian diet and you can thrive on a meat incorporated diet But not everybody can. And, you know, you let your intuition guide you as to what sounds best to you. But we're going to talk and get into some of the toxins and how and what to avoid in your diet. But most importantly, when I talk about this first section of which how much carbs should you have? And I would say I've heard the arguments that you shouldn't even count your calories. You shouldn't count carbs. And I tend to agree but you kind of have to be at a really healthy baseline for that to be totally valid. I tend not to count calories. I'm not sure, you know, calories work in funny ways. So for example, you might eat 200 grams of carbohydrates, but how much does that weigh in your muscle? If it's deposited into your muscle, it weighs a lot more. So carbohydrates can carry a higher weight But it's muscle weight. So it's such a distinctive thing because, you know, we always think of the bad weight as being our fat and muscle content is not bad. So that's why your weight can fluctuate so much from day to day. And we're going to talk about salt next and salts fluctuate your weight quite significantly from day to day. And so... Weight's a tricky one for me because I, I don't really want you focused too much on the scale. You want to focus more on what is your body? How is your body reshaping? So yes, I'm a believer. There's a lot of people who do a really low fat diet thinking that's going to make them less fat, but that's not true 
unless they're super carb overloaded, in which case they really do need to be careful about monitoring their fat because their fat is not being burned. They're not burning fat because they're burning carbs. Remember, carbs are the fuel that is the easiest to burn, not not the most productive in energy, but the easiest to burn and the quickest to burn when you're in excess. So your body will always compensate by burning carbs first. So if you're somebody who eats a lot of carbs in your diet, then you do have to be more careful about fat. All right. We'll get into more of that, I'm sure, as we scroll down through this list. So on the carbs, I really want you to focus on not taking in anything refined, anything bleached. For God's sake, we have enough bleaching going on in our world. So do not take bleached sugar. Do not take refined sugar. You're looking for sugar cane, alternative sources of sugar, you know, could be anything that hasn't been processed or treated. So it could be, you know, maple syrup. It could be honey. It could be sources like that. Or it could be uh, granules, uh, you know, unprocessed sugar granules from sugar cane. All those things are fine to me. I'm also a believer that stevia is currently the best artificial sweetener on the market right now, the least toxic, if you will. And it does not appear to alter the microbiome. I believe all the other sugar alternatives are, in fact, changing the epigenetics of your microbiome, shifting the the behavior of the bugs that are growing in your gut, the good bugs, making you less tolerant, potentially making you absorb sugar more readily. This is why they say, Diet Coke makes people fat because it actually changes your microbiome. And when it does, those changes cause you to absorb and hold more sugar. Now, I am a believer that the main way that sugar causes weight gain is in the muscle and not in fat. It is true that sugar can be made into fat, but I don't believe that it is on a regular basis. The only time I believe that your sugar is made into fat in most humans on the planet today is in starvation mode where people are literally, you know, so depleted of their fat, their healthy fat content. So their fat contents dropped in women, let's say below somewhere between 16 and 18%. And then men, let's say below 7% fat. Then all of a sudden the body doesn't have fat as a fuel anymore. And once it burns through its carbs, it will literally take carbs and turn them into fatty acids so that it can make cholesterol for you and different things like that. So there are strategies your body has. Your brilliant body. Let me remind you again, as I often like to do in my podcasts. Oh man, the remarkable way that your body performs and shifts based on the whims of your your ego-based diet is just incredible. All right. So Stay away from refined flours and refined sugars, highly inflammatory, highly poisonous to the body. They atrophy your fat pads. They can be a real problem. So just remember, trying to do good carbs is always a good thing. Okay, now when we get into salt, a similar model. I want you taking sea salt, uh, ideally pink Himalayan sea salt is my favorite. Nothing refined, no table salt, no iodized salt. I want you to actually get your iodine from nascent atomic iodine. I don't want you relying on iodide from your salt. That's actually not a healthy version of it by my take. So atomic iodine, also called nascent iodine, separate that from your salt. Use pink Himalayan salt. And what's going to happen then is you are going to have less 
uptake of it. Now, it's still true that a salty meal with pink Himalayan salt can cause weight gain. And the main reason why is that the salt is in your bloodstream at a concentration your bloodstream's not comfortable with. So it will move that salt to your fat to assist in balancing out the amount of salt in your bloodstream. However, when you use pink Himalayan salt over refined salt, table salt, you will not hold the salt in for as long. It's not a toxin in your body. It's simply a repository in the fat cell. And of course, fluid goes with it. So it's less likely to cause weight gain if it's a healthy version of salt and it is less likely to cause, you know, cellulite dimpling and things like that on the skin. And it's less likely to cause puffiness in the cheeks, which is a salt fat pad zone. And also under the eyes, if you take in a lot of table salt, you're more likely to hurt your kidneys. And so you'll get puffiness in the lower lids as a result of that salt. Whereas pink Himalayan salt, less likely to create that level of trauma. So really important in the beauty category, salt is a big fluctuator of weight. So, you know, that's another reason why people don't get on scales because one day you're like, wow, it's so good. Or the next day you're like, whoa, that's so bad. So think about in nutrition for the skin. All right. Next category is alcohol. Some of your people's out there's favorite category. You know, and the question is always, how does alcohol affect your nutrition? How does it affect your skin health? And it's a kind of a funny thing, alcohol. When it's taken internally, uh, (laughs) let me say it in a normal way, when it is ingested or consumed, it does tend to cause dehydration. So you can see dehydration of your skin. It causes puffiness in the lower lids because it affects your kidneys negatively. So you can see puffiness under the eyes as a common beauty slash skin effect. It really, however, takes quite a bit of abuse to get your system to show it on the skin in different ways. So here's what I would say. Number one, worst way that alcohol affects your skin is in a chronic hard alcohol drinker who sees liver damage start to show up with blood vessels called telangiectasias or broken capillaries on the face. And that usually is diffuse broken capillaries. It's reflecting pretty severe liver damage. I'm talking about true alcoholics here that are getting this. Although, you know, patchy liver, uh, like if you drink pretty consistently, let's say you like beer pretty consistently, you're less likely to see that severe damage of the capillaries and telangiectasias, but you are more likely to develop a puffiness, a yeast-based toxicity in your gut that we can talk about here. Because what you see when you drink beer, you're more likely to see rosacea in the upper cheeks and in the forehead. You're more likely to see, well, you'll still see the puffiness under the eyes. That's pretty much with all alcohol because that's your kidneys. You're more likely to see acne in the uh, cheeks and the forehead and the temples because you're feeding candida with yeast-based. And of course, there's fermentation in wine and other and alcohols as well, but there's a more uh, yeast-heavy focus in beer. 
with wine, you might see some acne on the neck and you might see some jawline acne. And this is from preservatives causing the jawline acne and pesticides causing the neck acne. So I tend to see this more in cheaper wines. I also see this more in, unfortunately, U.S.-based, California-based wines where pesticides are used more readily in our country than in other countries. So when I drink wine, I try to ask for Australia, New Zealand wine or European wines as a preference over U.S. wines. And moving on to some of the nutritional aspects of your diet, you know, I've asked you to consider eating about 25% fat. And um, I've had some really interesting debates lately about with dietitians about fats. And I get it. I do understand, you know, the argument for saturated fats being less necessary by the body, but they're still a source of nutrition. So as long as you're avoiding hydrogenated fats, I am not on a huge bandwagon with saturated fats. Do I think polyunsaturated fats are better? Absolutely. They are better for you overall with their net gain and net nutrient value to the body. But saturated fats are still a source of fuel. They're still something that your body can rely on as part of the 25% fat that you incorporate. And I know that might be a little controversial for some, but again, I come from the perspective that saturated fat on its own is not a big source of inflammation the way, say, processed flour or refined sugar or refined salt are. It is a nutrient source that doesn't necessarily have to cause harm to the body. Now, in a lot of cases, when you're getting your saturated fats, they are coming with toxins. And so that combination of saturated fat plus refined sugar plus pesticides, hormones, and food preservatives, that is a toxic mix and mess <laughs> that, you know, this should be avoided. And so, yes, there, it's true that if you're getting your saturated fats from a normal dairy, so not organic dairy, then yeah, you're going to get a bunch of other crap with it. And, and yeah, the chance of inflammation is there. And I get people want to point me to studies that say, hey, this fat is linked to this heart disease. But I just want to remind you that it's there's such crossover between, hey, when I eat this much fat in my diet and it's coming from, you know, poorly treated cows that have been, you know, pickled with hormones and stuff, that's going to be a different health outcome than if I'm doing grass-fed lean meat from, say, elk, or, you know, what have you, although I don't personally like elk meat. But yeah, like what I'm trying to get at is organic meat really does make a difference. You know, the types of meat you get, pork is going to have more toxins in it because of the nature of the animal than, than cow is. And so, you know, I'm not going to give you all those layers today. That's quite a complicated, that's a whole book. <laughs> that's a whole book that's not in my current short list to write. But I want you to sort of try to take that common sense to your diet so you, that you know what to think about. But yeah, polyunsaturated fats, better. So sometimes people ask me, well, is butter bad for you? Butter can be bad for you. Organic butter, grass-fed organic butter is pretty low on my list of things that I worry about. 
I happen to like butter, but I get it. If you want to do almond butter or try something else, I just, uh, I'm resisting going away from the processed fats, you know, the margarines of the world that are still out and being sold, even though they're, you know, research proven to be toxic. So yeah, I don't mind my fats. You know, I don't mind my half and half in my coffee. I don't, you know, I don't mind that stuff as long as I'm searching for grass fed organic in most cases. Okay, well, and that leads me to dairy, which, you know, how does dairy affect the skin? It's affecting more and more people the wrong way. And so I don't mean to say that's a sign that dairy should be eliminated from all diets everywhere, although I know dietitians who do. My take on dairy is you're either have the microbiome to handle it or you don't. So there's some people born with a microbiome that doesn't tolerate a lot of dairy. And chances are they normally wouldn't crave a lot of dairy. I think people who crave a lot of dairy probably have a microbiome that does tolerate dairy just fine. And that has to do with lactobacillus strains and balance and health of the microbiome. So I'm going to speak to you from the idea that you have taken osmosis's recovery and you have restored your microbiome, you have controlled your yeast, If you had yeast overgrowth with our skin perfection and your gut, it's baseline DNA designed microbiome. Remember your DNA is what determines your microbiome. So by this is my perspective, of course. And so as a result of that, if you get back to baseline and that's usually three months of one tablespoon a day of recovery, if you get back to baseline, then you should be able to tolerate dairy if that's right for you. Now, what can it cause if it is overly pasteurized or full of other junk? It can cause mucus, and mucus leads to candida overgrowth, which can lead to acne and blackheads. Mucus can cause a different strain of candida overgrowth, which can lead to IBS and or constipation and bloating. So mucus is a factor. A lot of people who cut dairy out of their diet, their mucus does get better. But remember, just cutting your dairy out doesn't automatically trigger a bunch of old mucus to leave, you might need our mucus cleanse called skin clarifier anywhere from one to three rounds. So if you feel a little better on one round, but things didn't quite clear up, chances are you need a second round. Almost nobody needs more than three rounds. All right. So other things to think about with dairy, you know, there's a conversation about whether or not dairy is addictive. My intuition is dairy is not addictive. You know, there's these Caseins, the caseins <laughs> that are apparently resemble endorphins or something. I, I'm not buying it. Um, then there's the IGF-1 argument. And they're like, oh, IGF-1 can promote cancers. And I'm not buying it. I don't think uh, cow IGF-1 is having much of an impact on the body. I don't think it's surviving stomach acid very well in addition to that. And so in general, I don't think the cow hormones are having a significant impact on us unless they're added to the cow's food, which is what average dairy does. They have a bunch of, let's call them designer hormones that are causing harm to your liver. And I think the cause of liver spots, liver spots mostly come from meat and dairy products that have these alternative hormone supplements that they're giving our cows. Oh, do I prefer whole milk or 2%? I mean, I'm a whole milk guy. It's your preference really on, on all that. But yes, by removing dairy, people have seen their eczema clear up. They've seen psoriasis get better, acne get better, all that to congested skin get better. Uh, That's all about the fact that dairy forms mucus. I find that dairy and fried foods are the two most common mucus-forming foods. 
So I get why people cut it out. You know, if, if you're a vegetarian, you know, you could be a pescatarian, right? You could have a, like, you could have little tidbits of, of diet. Find that niche that works for you. Now, if you're all about the politics of it and the saving of the animals of it, I get it. But I do worry sometimes that if your instincts are more about the animals and less about what you're truly craving, that you may fall into that category where your body does not thrive on a vegan diet. There are just those of you who, who are not thriving on a vegan diet and you're in denial because it makes so much sense to you because of your, you know, passion for animal health and safety, but you know, let your body be determinant. And that sort of leads me into this diet conversation. So let me just say nuts and seeds are great for the skin and contain a lot of amino acids and healthy lipids that are going to be good for you. And in general, you know, I want people to gravitate to, you know, one of the things I found about veganism is, first of all, you can get fat being a vegan. <laughs> That's what I, I have gleaned. I did not realize uh, that was not uncommon. But also because there's so many oils and alternative sources of food that are high calorie, high nutrient dense foods, right? And that's kind of what I want to get to is it is harder as a vegan to be healthy because you really do have to put the work in or at least find good sources if you're not putting the work in for, you know, lots of healthy foods. And so I just think if you like to cook and you and you know how to make vegetable dishes deliciously and you know your stuff, then you should I mean, absolutely continue, but I do appreciate for those people how hard it is if you don't have vegan restaurants near you to keep up adequate calorie content. Like I know when I've tried to cut meat and dairy out of my diet, I don't cook enough and I don't crave enough of those alternative foods. So I just end up not eating enough. And that's not a healthy way to do this diet. You want to eat plentifully. And that's where I guess I would say I kind of lean towards a meal and a half a day. That's me. You know, some people might need it more. Now, what's funny is the leaner I get, the closer I get to 6% body fat, the less my body allows me to go 12 hours without eating. So I might have a meal. I might only have a major meal at dinner, kind of work through lunch, have, you know, some calorie content in my food choices in the, in the morning, but not a big meal in the morning. And so this is just how I found my comfort zone. It seems to work for me. But like I said, as my body fat is inching closer and closer to 6%, I find that now I'm like really hungry in the middle of the day. So I honor that. If I'm really hungry in the middle of the day, I'm grabbing, you know, nuts and seeds, maybe some mix that's got a few dried fruits in it and or, you know, going for the big guns. It just all depends. Like I'm hearing my stomach rumbling right now and it's just past lunchtime. So that's to me an indicator that I'm pushing the envelope of not eating. So, you know, I worked out for an hour this morning. If you're working out in the morning, that's going to change your, your body's requirements. Like you may have grabbed and you're like, if your glycogen stores are right at baseline, in other words, you don't have a lot of excess glycogen and your body fat's low, then yeah, your body might be struggling a little bit to find its fuel sources. Don't let that happen. I mean, that's why I don't like the, the keto, no carb diet because glycogen stores are the main fuel source, you know, they're the main quick go-to around your muscle. Okay. 
So that kind of leads me to this final thought, which is just remember, if you are going to focus on getting more plant foods in your diet, which is clearly by the research shown to be a healthier approach, then just remember to stay organic as much as possible. You want to avoid the pesticide-laden foods. I think that's one of the challenges of people that only eat vegetables is it's hard to find all organic. And so you end up taking in maybe a higher percentage of pesticide in your diet. Although that has been challenged, I will tell you, I've had dietitians challenge that uh, concept, but that seems to me kind of logical. If my entire diet is based on plants and not all the plants, even uh, organic plants contain more pesticides than say organic dairy, then because of they can respray them and you know the different rules they're allowed or there's contaminant spray or whatever it is. So I think there's a slightly higher risk of pesticide accumulation in the body for which you would take our skin defense, by the way. Skin defense binds these pesticides really effectively. Same with food preservatives. And that's the other thing. A lot of times there's there's vegan meals, but they're highly preserved bars. Or if you're if you're in a vegan mindset, you're always looking for nutrition sources. And so try to avoid the the store bought bars that have a lot of preservatives in them. And then uh, just ultimately, I would say, you know, for good skin health, you need to get detoxed. So uh, you want to clean out the toxins in the fat cells. Um, this can be a process, usually three months. It could be as much as six to 12. I've even seen 24 months cases for people who live in farming communities or have had real heavy doses of fast food as children. They might need a really long time to detox their fat cells. And that's going to affect how their parents is uh, the, the level of swelling in their cheeks, the level of swelling under their eyes, general skin quality. And then, you know, we want to, once your microbiome is healthy, kind of honor the cravings that you might be going for. I tend to think that the cravings are intelligent when your microbiome is healthy. So get your microbiome healthy with our recovery and Really start paying attention to the foods you eat, and you'll see sometimes which foods are triggering breakouts and which ones aren't. So, for example, a lot of vegans supplement with pea protein. I find that breaks people out right next to their chin, not right in the middle chin, but on the side chin zones. And so I don't recommend pea protein as an additional source of protein for people. And where you're going to see your skin start to glow, you get good omegas and especially the omegas that come from the recovery product, such a balanced presentation. So you're going to get your, your good fats from that and, you know, try to hang in there on the alcohol consumption. And this is a good starter for us all. Okay. So that's nutrition for your skin. I'm sure I'll be providing more details. And as I continue to dive in more and more and understand how it all works uh, from this holistic perspective that I take on the body. So hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Ask Dr. Ben. Please leave a review if you can and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts to get access to all of my upcoming episodes. My website is osmosisbeauty.com and you can find me on Facebook at osmosisbeauty. You can also follow me on Instagram at osmosis underscore beauty. Thanks for listening.